Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,517. Don't do what you do for the money. Don't do it for success or whatever. Do it because you love it. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. I'm revved up and so excited to share with you today a very special guest by the name of Carl Troy. Carl Troy owns European Road and Racing in North Charleston, South Carolina. He opened his business in 1990, but way back in 1985, Carl worked for Brunt Motorsports preparing one of those wonderful Porsche 962s for the IMSA series. That must have been cool. In 1986, he and his team went on to become, I should say, world champions. Today, his European road and racing team are luxury car service experts caring for a wide variety of vehicles, including all manufacturer services, inspections, diagnostics, engine repair, replacement, suspension, transmission parts. They do everything and much, much more. They perform complete performance builds and upgrades, plus they offer driver's coaching for DE and road racing events. These guys are having some fun. We'll be back in a minute to talk to Carl, but first, a word from our valued sponsors. That make Cars Yeah possible. We'll be right back. Hey, Cars Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Covercraft. I've protected my vehicles with their products for decades. Want to keep your vehicle's interior looking new? It's easy with Covercraft seat covers. They'll protect your seats from the daily abuse of pets, children, weekend adventures, and even those everyday spills. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. All Covercraft seat covers are easy-on, easy-off design that are machine washable. You can choose from many fabric options, colors, and accessories, all designed and carefully sewn for your special vehicles. Their seat gloves are semi-custom fit for cars and trucks, and their seat savers, a favorite of mine, are custom tailored to fit your seats like a glove. Work truck seat covers are tough, durable, denim weight fabric. It's like putting a pair of rugged jeans on your truck's seats. Want to stay warm? Covercraft also offers seat heaters. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark at Cars yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. Are you a Cars yeah subscriber? If you're not, go to CarsYeah.com, click on the free book button, and I'll send you my free filler-up book. It's a very cool book I created of fuel filler fun, some very cool imagery, and great quotes from past guests here on Cars yeah. Plus, you'll get my weekly email follow-up and... My weekly blog. Just go to carsyad.com, click on the free book button, and I'll send it to you right away. Thanks for subscribing. All right, Carl, welcome to Cars. Yeah, my friend, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I've been strapped in and racing seats almost all my life, Mark. Thank you for having me. All right, you bet. I'll try to keep it between the guardrails here. Now, before I jump into some of the questions I have for you today, Carl, I want you to tell our listeners maybe one little thing that most people don't know about Carl Troy. Well, I was, uh, most people know that the, fa- the fact that I was born in Austria and I came here as a teenager. But when I was uh, four years old, I uh, told my mother I was going to be a race car driver. And it's amazing how many years it took, but it did finally uh, fulfill that dream of mine and also successfully, not just fulfill it, but I was uh, successful at it. One of the things, I did lots of things over the years with cars that pointed me in the right direction. So 
we owned, my parents owned a bakery in Vienna, Austria. And my dad would work through the night, of course, and then sleep during the day. He had a BMW 323i Alpina at the time. And one time, uh, I was 11 years old and my dad was sleeping. I said, you know what? I'm going to be a race car driver one day. I didn't really think that, but that's kind of what, what uh, <laughs> you would think I thought that. I decided to take his BMW through the city of Vienna so I can go fast on the Autobahn. don't know how I made it out. I don't know how I made it back, but I did it. And <laughs> I do remember going down in the center lane of three lanes on the Autobahn. And on the Autobahn, of course, they have guardrails on either side. And I swear to you, I thought my ears were just about to touch the guardrail. That's how narrow... That center lane oh seemed gosh. to me at 80 miles an hour, yeah. 130 kilometers. Yeah. And um, my kids know the story. My wife knows the story. My wife's always said, oh, that's a great example for your kids. Why don't you tell them more? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just be quiet, Dad. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to give that. Well, they can go to Europe and drive on the Audubon where speeds are a little higher, but don't be doing that here at home. That's for sure in South Carolina. Oh my gosh. Well, that's very cool. You know, your Austrian accent sounds a lot like East Coast accent to me. There, there's something going on here. You got a, a wonderful mix of accents in your, your voice. I, I hear almost a little maybe Jersey in there, but a little bit of European, almost some Spanish. I mean, you've got a very unique uh, accent, but man, having a dad who's a baker in Austria, pastries and oh, some of the best stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, and it was those, those early years of my life where I learned a lot about what it took to, to do what you were asked to do and what you needed to do. There was times I, I was always involved. I was always eager to learn things. I knew how to run machinery in the bakery downstairs in the basement. Uh, there was times my father would, uh, wake me up at 1 a.m. and say, Hey, Carl, my full name was actually Carl Heinz, just like Heinz ketchup. But I never liked the yeah. name, so I went to Carl when I moved to the U.S. But my father would wake me up and said, hey, so-and-so didn't show up for work tonight. Can you please come downstairs and run this machine for me? And I would do that uh, 11 years old. I would run the machinery at 7 a.m. I'd go upstairs and get uh, uh, get uh, showered and dressed and went to school. And uh, this wow. was not compensated for. This was just, hey, your family needs you and you need to step up. And I obviously did that. I had no problems doing it. I didn't expect anything for it. It was just my part of helping the family. And that's how it should be. And that's kind of how my life has shaped itself by examples like that of um, this is just the way that's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's what you do. Well, let's talk about um, a success quote or a mantra, some kind of saying that has meaning for you. I like to say it's a nice way to get the inspirational tires smoking here on Cars. Yeah, since you're a fast a driver. So, Carl, grab the wheel. So, I think that the way people should run their lives and should go through life is whatever you do, give it your all. Don't do what you do for the money. Don't do it for success or whatever. Do it because you love it. We in our business, or I in my business, I absolutely love what I do. I compare myself or our shop to a hospital every day. Every day. Doctors, you expect to do everything in their power to make you better when you get sick. We, in general, are resurgents. We are doctors of any kind when we work on people's cars. And our customers expect us to give it our all. Everything that's available to us, every resource, we will use to make their car better and do it right the first time and charge them a fair amount to do it. So to sum it all up, I think that too many people in various professions, it doesn't matter, and how much money can I make today? What's in it for me? 
But if you put others first and you give it your all and absolutely love what you do, then first of all, it doesn't seem like a job. And it is so fulfilling when you go home at the end of the day, knowing that you've done the best that you can do. Absolutely. Well, let me have you tell our listeners a little bit more about all the things you do. European road and racing. I mean, I look at your company. I look at your website. I don't know if there's anything you don't do. You guys do so many things. You take care of all sorts of cars, all sorts of levels and so forth. What has you excited and fired up about your business these days? What really keeps me is the fact that the following that we have, the customers that come to us. When I have a customer pick uh, recently, they came and picked up a BMW for me. There were several people in the waiting room. She paid the bill. I happened to walk in as she was about to walk out. She walks up to the end. This lady is like 75 years old. She walks up to me, plants a kiss on my cheek and says, thank you so much for always taking care of me. I love you. And at that moment, oh, Mark, nice. <laughs> I didn't even care if I got paid. Uh, it, the getting paid almost meant nothing, even though, of course, we need to so we can pay our bills. But that, to me, is keeps me excited. When I walk in the shop in the morning, I say, thank you, God. Look what we have here and look what we've built and look what we are able to do for people every day. Yeah, you know, that's pretty nice when your customer says, I love you, because most people, when they're getting their cars fixed, uh, it's not a very fun experience. I mean, you know you have to do it, but you, it's kind of like getting a new roof on your house. You're right back where you started, but you spent all this money. But I tell you, if you have a great person who's servicing your vehicles, and I have the same here for my BMW and my Porsche, it's actually kind of a fun adventure. You get to know them, you become friends with them. And you know that they're taking good care of you and taking good care of your car if you're a maniac like I am and like you are about our cars. But that's an awesome story. Well, let's go to the flip side here. Let's talk about a big challenge you've faced, uh, maybe even a big failure you've faced along the way. Walk us through that. But more importantly, what was the learning lesson there? And how did that experience help you come out in a positive way on the other end to move forward? Well, I first of all, I don't look at failures as a failure, really. Failures, in my opinion, only failures if you learn nothing from it. Then it is a complete failure. If you can learn from your failures or your mistakes, uh, or let's put, let's put it this way. If you can learn from your mistakes and it makes you better, then it really wasn't a failure after all. But one of the big lessons I had to learn is that, you know, just like you may be the best chef in town, but that does not mean you're going to be the best restaurant owner. I had to learn so much about running a shop and running a business, and I still am. Every day, I learn from from peers in the business that are very close friends of mine, Tony Callis, uh, Jake Raby, Charles Navarro. I mean, there's so many people that I've uh, closely networked that we've become good friends as a group, and they will always stop to help you if needed, and I would do the same for them, and they know it, and there's no questions asked. What do you need? What, how can I help you? And that is beautiful. And that's the other thing. You have to be open-minded. You have to be humble or humble yourself to be able to learn from others uh, instead of thinking you know it all already. And so, again, many, many challenges, way too many to, to list. But in my opinion, uh, I would not call them failures. If you learn from them, then they were just mistakes that made you better. So let me do this. I'm going to push you a little harder on this question here. I want you to take us to a specific maybe instance or time that kind of pushed you a little bit, pushed you beyond your comfort zone. Kind of walk us through exactly what that was. Um, I think we'll probably figure out as we hear this what the lesson learned, but more importantly, I like to say, how did you come out on the other side? So kind of, instead of an antidote, kind of take us to one specific thing that maybe sticks in your memory a little. 
That way, the others listening who might be going through something here uh, can learn from that. In 2006, I became the first ever 944 Porsche 944 Super Cup National Champion. After running the 2007 season, I, it was time for nationals again, also at Mid-Ohio uh, Raceway. This time, there was some healthy competition there. Even though I was a favorite going in, I had, I had a very tough job ahead of me. There was a competitor that outqualified me in both qualifying races, but I performed best under pressure. So in both qualifying races, I ended up winning after all. At the end of the qual- second qualifying race, my car was put in a dyno, and it was on a 38, I think 38 or 39 degree day. The rest of the weekend was 65 degrees. And my car, for the first time ever, was three horsepower over its legal limit, which on, normally, oh, no. on a normally aspirated engine means absolutely nothing. But rules are rules. And unfortunately, the competitor that was closest to me in the competition uh, with lap times uh, was standing right there, even though he was not supposed to. This diner run was supposed to be for the competitor, meaning me, uh, the series director, and the dyno operator. No one else was supposed to be present. And of course, when he saw my car three horsepower over, up, oh, we knew it, we knew it, the car's not legal. And he screamed and started telling everyone and this and that. Based on that, I was disqualified and lost my pole position for the championship race and had to start the race in 10th place. I was devastated. Uh, had my two young children. They're now Sean. My son Sean just turned 22. He's my service advisor at the shop. My daughter Abby does uh, bookkeeping stuff and pays the bills. She's 19. They were obviously very little in 2007, and they came to the race with me. I had them at the hotel with me, and they were sound asleep, and Carl was still awake at 4 in the, in the morning trying to figure out what he's going to do because he really had no chance of winning this race after what had happened. Because the guy that was literally just as fast as I was, was sitting on the pole and I was in 10th place. Finally, I started thinking differently. I played with my mind, uh, or let me say, I did not let my mind play with me. I finally <laughs> yeah, thought, better said. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I finally thought differently. So I said, Carl, instead of starting from 10th place, you're actually starting in fifth row. It sounds a lot better already. So yeah, that, all right. <laughs> that gave me hope uh, right there, and I started feeling better. So now my positive thinking continued. And I said, you know, the people that are in front of you at this particular start are never in front of you because you're always ahead of them. They don't even care that you're behind them because you never are. They are too concerned about the people in front of them that they always compete against throughout the season. So they're worried about them and you being behind them is the last thing on their minds because you're never there. So they pretty much have already forgotten about you. And that's what led me to this thought of this can be the element of surprise. I will, everyone always dives to the inside of turn one so they can shorten the track and shorten the distance to outbreak some or whatever. And that's exactly what everyone did. And when the start came along, I went all the way to the outside and I dove into turn one in 10th place and I came out in fifth place. So I passed (laughs) half the field under braking in an area where no one was other than me and everybody battled on the inside. I went to the outside. And uh, after that, my confidence level shot up through the roof and I, yep. after, I believe, after lap five or four, I was in the lead. 
And from then on, I was <laughs> there you go. waiting there for you me to hear. <laughs> but basically what that meant is don't let things that, that push you down, keep you down. Think positively. If the approach or the, if the mindset that you have does not work, come up with a different mindset. Use different thoughts to inspire you to get out of that hole and make things better. Yeah, you know, this is an absolutely wonderful story, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. And of course, Fortune 944s, a lot of people don't realize how cool and successful th- that whole series of cars was back then. But I had a great guest on the show, Jacques Dallaire, who wrote Performance Prime, and he's a coach for professional athletes and race car drivers. And he talks exactly about what you're talking about, that you need to, when you find yourself in a pinch, in a tough situation, change the way you think about it. And and your example there was absolutely brilliant. I'm in 10th place. No, I'm on the fifth row. Okay, I'm half the way, halfway there. Yeah. Okay, everyone's diving in. I'm going to go around the outside because, you know, at that point in the race, the outside isn't full of marbles. It's actually probably got more traction. It's not going to have traction later. So uh, that was brilliant, Carl. Thanks for taking us there. What a what a great deal. One more thing, Mark, actually, that I forgot. So because I was completely blindsided by my three horsepower over uh, the limit, you know, deal that I was dealing with, I ended up uh, adding 100 pounds to the car, which allowed me five horsepower extra in case there was something wrong with my car that gave me the extra power. Well, of course, the extra 100 pounds changes everything, of course, and the car is limited to a certain horsepower and, and weight limit. And ironically, I, with that extra 100 pounds, not only did I win the national championship race, I said a track record that still stands today. And when the car came in and it was all heat sunk from the, from the race, my car was actually 12 horsepower under the limit, just like it usually is when it's <laughs> at the end of the race because the temperatures will back up. Yeah. So yeah. So in other yeah. words, it was what a huge statement that was for everyone. I proudly opened the hood and the doors of the car and walked away and, and invited anyone Look for whatever you want to look for because there's nothing there. <laughs> I love it. What a great story. Well, we're going to take a short break. Thank our sponsors. And from that, we'll be right back. Wonderful story. My favorite collector car magazine is Keith Martin's Sports Car Market. I've been a subscriber for decades. Sports Car Market is the Wall Street Journal for the enthusiast and the collector. It's your monthly must read whether you dream of owning a collector car, have two cars, or 200. Sports Car Market has been around for 31 years. And it's filled with valuable articles, intelligent write-ups, and the latest auction sales. Go to sportscarmarket.com and subscribe today. Plus, you'll get the exclusive SEM guide to restoration shops included for free. At checkout, use the code CARSYA and receive a 50% discount on your digital subscription. It's an exclusive offer from me here at Cars Yeah. I'm Mark Green, and I love Sports Car Market Magazine. Are you looking for a way to get your products or services into the ears of thousands of automotive enthusiasts around the globe? I can help. This is Mark Green here at Cars Yeah, and I'd be honored to be an influencer and ambassador for your brand in a unique and personal way. Five days a week, thousands of subscribers and listeners enjoy the Cars Yeah podcast and website. Contact me today and I'll show you how at mark at carsyeah.com or connect with me through the Cars Yeah website at carsyeah.com. If you're listening to Cars Yeah, you've probably spent some time working on your favorite ride. But how confident are you working on your finances? You may be able to rebuild a fuel injection system, but can you decipher the details of a mutual fund? 
If you're like me, investments, insurance, annuities, budgeting, and other financial concepts may seem a bit daunting, but what if I told you there's a book that describes these subjects and more in an easy-to-read and a very humorous way? My friend Chris Kimball, CFP, a longtime sponsor and past guest here on Cars yeah, has written that book, and it's titled The Saga of Ike and Penny, A Couple's Humorous Journey Through the Confusing World of Finance. It's a fun look at things you need to know, everything from investing to effective ways to get rid of credit card debt and it's probably the only book on finance with a vmax on the front cover and a classic mini cooper on the back the book's available at amazon for just ten dollars and this book will dramatically improve the direction of your financial future i gave copies to each of my children all securities are through money concepts capital corp christopher kimball financial services is not affiliated with money concepts capital corp get your copy the saga of ike and penny today All right, we are back, and I want you to share a story that instigated this passion you have for cars and racing. I think this goes way back. Is there a pivotal moment in your life when you knew you were indeed going to be a car guy? I was very little. I I grew up in in the the country of Salzburg in Austria, which is kind of like the city of Salzburg in the country, kind of like New York State, New York City. So I grew up in the country of Salzburg. I was the only one in my family. My father was not mechanically inclined. He was not into cars. Of course, my mother wasn't. And I didn't have any siblings until my brother, many years later, when I was 11 years old, my brother was born, my brother Martin. So I I do remember vividly, we had no car when I was young. We just walked around, we rode bicycles and took long walks and went skiing right around the corner from the house. I got my first pair of skis when I was two years old and so forth. But I remember walking with my parents to, to the store or whatever, and it would be nighttime. And I would guess, uh, I was maybe four years old, five years old, and I guessed that the car is coming towards us by the sound of the engine or by the shape and the appearance of the headlights or the taillights. And it was like a game I was playing with myself. I was, uh, okay, I got 10 in a row. That was perfect. And my parents were like, wow, you did it again. And they inspired me, of course, and encouraged me to, to do it. And I, I, it was just a fun game for me to play. So I was always connected to cars. And again, you know, taking my dad's car out at 11, it just shows that it was something that I couldn't shake. It was in there and it had to get out. Yeah, absolutely. How about your first really special vehicle in your life? That first car that you got looking back that really had great meaning for you. What was it? So I purchased, as actually, I have to tell a a little pre-story to that. My wife and I got married in May of 1990. My wife and I met. um, I was driving a BMW that I bought from the Brun Motorsports team in in Switzerland when I worked over there for them. I brought the BMW back to uh, to the States for me. We met in uh, the neighborhood that my mom lived in. And my wife lived in with her son uh, after having been divorced. She met me because she called me about the BMW had for sale. She had no intentions or the money to buy it, but she just wanted to meet me. And that was the perfect way of doing it. Long story short, when we finally got married a couple of years later, right after, right after we got married, I sold the BMW. Somewhere in my teenage years, I swore to myself, by the time I'm 25, I will have a Porsche 911. And that was a goal I never took my eyes off. When we got married, I was 24. My birthday, my 25th birthday was in November of 1990. My wife says to me, I cannot believe you sold the BMW because I sold the BMW right after we got married to buy a 911. And I, and my wife said, I can't believe you sold the BMW. That's the only reason I married you. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
Sorry, honey. I I, I hope that was a joke. (laughs) Yeah, we hope so. Well, you've been married for about 30 years now, so I guess she still likes you for some reason. So either way, my reply was, well, that's okay. I've been wanting a Porsche 911 a lot longer than I've been wanting you. Oh, ow. (laughs) Right back at you. (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, my gosh. Great man. So, yes, we're we're honest with each other. (laughs) But anyway, so that Porsche 911, goal I had before I even met my wife, I had parts at my mom's house that were, and keep in mind, I worked with the racing team at the time, and I traveled back and forth to Europe. And I had wheels and tires. I had body panels. I had wings and spoilers and fenders and fender flares, all kinds of stuff sitting in my mom's garage laid out in the shape of a car. I would sit on the garage floor dreaming of driving this Porsche 911 one day. After my wife and I got married, I bought that Porsche 911. I spent approximately 350 hours doing all the body work and paint work, adding all those panels that I had bought several years prior. I didn't even realize at that time that tires can dry rot when they sit in the garage. I was too young to even think or even care because I had a goal in mind and this was to build this car. So this car, this Porsche 911 was a wide body that was six foot six wide. So 78 inches wide. It was very wide. It basically looked kind of like a Porsche 934 in a sense. And I built this car with my own hands. I did the body, I did the paint, I did everything. And um, so, yeah, talk about a goal that you'd set your eyes on that you did not let go of until you get to the end. And that's kind of how I've, uh, what I've done all my life. What was the um, the basic uh, starting point, Chassis? What year was the, the car that you started with as you modified it? It was a 1980 911SC. Unfortunately, it was a Targa. It wasn't my, my choice. It wasn't my favorite choice. I would have preferred a coupe. But um, I had a goal to keep, and that was I was almost 25, so I had to buy this, and this was a car that was reasonably priced. I sold a BMW, and I basically, I believe I financed maybe, I think, $3,000 on that Porsche. The rest I paid with money I'd saved. But, um, uh, and then that's like the first time I've ever financed a vehicle, or a portion of it. But, of course, that was paid off within two years of the very short loan. And um, the car was mine. And I put, I think I, very I cool. put well over 100,000 miles on that car. Yeah, very cool. I love the SCs. Those are just bulletproof cars, but uh, that's pretty cool. Well, here's an introspective question for you, Carl. If you were a vehicle, what would Carl be and why? Well, um, I would probably be a race car of some type. Not a street car, but a race car. Why? Because a well-built race car responds well to input. Uh, it knows how to perform at its best at any level, what is handling, what is braking, what is acceleration, and long-lasting. That, I think, would sum up everything that a person would want to be in life, you know, in any aspect. <laughs> I like it. Nice answer. All right, Carl, we are entering the last lap. You've been here many times. The white flag is out. You can see the checkered in the distance. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of that race car throttle. So here we go. What's one of your personal habits that you think has helped you succeed over the years? Um, I believe the best, again, as I mentioned before, is focus on what you want to do, love what you do, and give it everything that you have. Uh, Apply everything that you know and, and have available to yourself to do that job. And that, again, that philosophy does not lend itself well to what we do for a living or what I do for a living, but to life. You know, you, if you have a chance to help your neighbor uh, in any way possible, do it. Don't care about 
kind of lead, like a leader mentality. The, the interesting thing about leaders is that they will do anything for someone else, whether it's financially, whether it's with their time, whether it's with information or any kind of help at all. But they don't look at it as giving stuff away, even though they do. And interestingly, they never lose because of it. Because they give it, they're giving from the heart, and it always comes back to them because that's not what they are looking for. How about if I could arrange for you to have a drink or a meal with anyone in the automotive or racing industry, living or deceased? Who would that be? I would, and that's because it was a, a big part of my life, uh, and I have seen him uh, a few times since then, but I have not seen him in many years. I would like to sit down with Walter Brun, my ex-boss with Brun Motorsports. The year of, uh, let me see. September 11th, uh, when that uh, occurred, the month after, I had to fly to Switzerland to a surprise birthday party for Walter. That's the last time I've seen him. And he was an inspiration. He was an excellent boss, caring person. He did so many things in his career that I wasn't even aware of when I worked for him. But after I worked for him and reading up on him, having some of his books that were made about him that I received when I was at the party uh, showed me so much more of who he was and what he did that I wasn't even aware of uh, during the time I worked for him. But again, to be part of a, not the, the drivers, not the cars, but the team world champion, that means in 1986, me and all the other team members became world champions. And that is huge. And I was, I was uh, just at the brink of turning 21. So that's a, a pretty great experience. And for me to have the opp- opportunity to be part of that, I thank him. I thank the people I worked with and that taught me a lot and got me going in the, in the direction of racing for myself even. He was a very special person in my life, and uh, I would love to see him again. That's cool. How about the best automotive advice someone else has given you? Well, I mean, I have to say, as far as uh, uh, great advice from someone in the automotive field, there's there's lots of great advice. Advice that I would uh, give anything to have again if I had to pay for it, I'd, I'd, I'd pay for it. But um, having friends uh, like Jake Raby, Tony Callis, for instance, uh, these are guys that have become wonderful friends of mine that will do anything for you. Whether it's again with the leader, leader mentality I mentioned earlier, uh, they will do anything for you. They they are not selfish. Oh, if I tell you, you know as much as I do. No, but they have given advice when it comes to business, whether it comes to how to deal with employees, how to deal with um, financial concerns at times or whatever. The advice is is endless. There's so many things I can't even think of just one. Uh, there's countless uh, episodes where I've received advice like that from friends like them that uh, is absolutely wonderful. And without it, uh, who knows where it would be. Well, let me flip this around then. If you were going to give one of your clients some very good personal advice about their automobile, what would that be? I give people advice on their automobiles every day. Sometimes there's not a week that goes by where the advice to someone is, listen, we just checked your car over. We see so many things wrong with it. It is time for you to let it go. I will not take advantage. Uh, well, I will Get not, rid of that thing. Yeah, I will not take advantage of the situation and say, hey, let's see if they'll spend the money. Maybe they will because that will be good for us. No. The honest answer is it is not worth it anymore. And it would be a financial distress to put all that money into that car. Uh, a car that's no longer worth it. And then the, the return on the investment would be, would be terrible. So my advice is basically the advice that does me absolutely no good because I just turned away a bunch of work. But again, the truth is the truth, and that's what we're all about when we deal with our customers. 
You know, this is a, I was just talking with a friend the other day about this. When your vehicle has a major big repair, but it's not worth a lot of money. And we had a little bit of a debate about this. And I know it all, a lot of this depends on people's personal financial situation. You know, when is the, the right time to let a car go? Um, I've always kept cars a long time. I've always repaired them when they need repairs, no matter what. I hate even the smallest of leaks. And we were talking about that, and and I asked the question, and I'll ask you this question because you brought it up. If you have a car that's maybe not worth a whole lot of money and it needs more repair work than the car is worth, is it really the smart thing to let the car go? Because now you've got to buy another car, and I guess it depends on your financial current financial situation. Do you want to have a car payment? Do you want to deplete your savings however you pay for your car? How would you answer that question? If I brought a car into you that, let's say, was worth, 20,000 bucks. It's a nice old BMW. A great car, looks really good, but it needs about $18,000 worth of work. Okay. Would you tell me to get another car or would you tell me to keep and fix the car? Or you can give it to someone you don't like. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how customers. But see, are- you just blew you just blew all of your your kindness right out the window there, Carl. No. Um, I know you're. Ki- I, I know you're kidding, but um, yeah. but yeah, how do you make that decision on a car? I mean, is it a, purely a dollars and cents, or, and do you have to remove the emotion? Because a lot of us love our cars. I mean, I have old cars, but I love them. I, yes. I'd rather just keep fixing them and driving them. And of course, when I present my suggestions to the customer, I I feel uh, obviously I joke a lot. My customers knows it know that I have a. My wife put a uh, little sign at the front counter that says, I speak fluent sarcasm. So people know that. <laughs> and they know how to take it. And I have this gift of presenting it in such a way to where I can say things that most people might get slapped for. But um, I have uh, I certainly presented with, with tact and with, with care and with love. But I, I explain it to them. I... I use a lot of medical terms when I explain car problems to people because they're a little more in tune with understanding. Uh, like the other day, uh, I had a customer that actually came to me after after when he picked his car up and he said, you know, they want to drop my car off waiting for a ride. I was just blown away by your explanation to the customer about the brake fluid. First, you came out and you showed them the nasty brake fluid in the waiting room while they were waiting and you showed them how dirty it was. Then you explain to them uh, why it needed to be replaced. And my example was basically, you know, water and brake fluid mix per- perfectly fine. You will never know what's in there unless you measure it with a with an electronic device. And um, the problem is the moisture content of the brake fluid can cause internal damage and corrosion within the hydraulic system. But you will not know it until it's too late. Kind of like when people have a clogged arteries and then they have a heart attack but they look perfectly fine on the outside but and therefore nobody's yeah they don't know it until it, it and stops when I, yeah. when I explain it that way they're like oh my gosh yes please do it now uh, but again our suggestions yeah. are always based on what's best for the customers otherwise we wouldn't suggest it and basically let them know hey listen if you see a guy in the ditch that is bleeding and you know you may bring him back to life the doctor that pulls over and wants to help pulls him out of the ditch fixes him up and this and that and then after he fixes him up and the guy's back to life, they realize the guy has cancer. Uh, he's got his liver's about to fail and he's about to have a heart attack. And, but you just fixed him up. And then you say to yourself, wow, didn't see that one coming, you know? And at that point, you say, well, what do you do? You know, it's a human being, it's a life. We should do everything possible to make it better, but then there comes a time when it's too late. Uh, that happens with humans and that happens with cars. And sometimes, you know, if a loved one is very, very ill, 
our selfishness will want them here forever because we don't want to let them go. But in their mind, they're like, please let me go. I'm over it. I'm done. I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. So you have to take emotion out of it sometimes. Certainly it's easier to do that with a car than with a human being or a loved one. But you have to be able to see things for what they are to make an educated decision. Is that Are the repairs imminent? Are they needed now? And are they outrageous now? Or is it small things that add up to $18,000, like the example you gave, that you can handle over the next couple of years? Well, if that's the case, well, and you love the car and you absolutely love with it, then, then certainly you can approach it that way. Uh, and, and I also tell my clients, listen, I've given you all the facts. That does not mean you need to do what I said. It does not mean you need to get rid of the car. I just want you to be aware of the challenges ahead. If you say, I'm in love with this car, thank you, Carl, for the honest answer that, that you gave me, but I really would like to keep it, then certainly we will be there with you along the way and make it that way and keep the car going for you. We just want to make you aware that it may not be the best financial decision. But ultimately, if the heart is bigger than the wallet, then, of course, people will make that decision, and we'll still support that in every way possible. We're not going to say, hey, you made a bad decision. We're not going to work on it for you. Certainly we will. But at least yeah. we made you. Or, at least we made the, you aware. Yeah, yeah. Or the passion's bigger than the brain. In some <laughs> cases, when you keep something that you probably shouldn't keep. How about a book, Carl? Is there a book that you've read you think our listeners would enjoy reading? I'm very honest with you. I don't read a whole lot unless I'm interested in a certain subject, and I will read up on it and educate myself. I move around too much. I I, I got to stay busy. I for me to sit down and relax and read. It's just not in my DNA. If I have to read some for a certain reason, then I certainly will make the time because I know I need the education. But just to kick back, I'm too wired to do that. You're a little high strong. You're a racer. How about, a, is there a magazine you like to subscribe to that you do uh, take the pleasure of enjoying once in a while? Um, we get all kinds of uh, car magazines to the shop, you know, sent to the shop for the customer's uh, uh, enjoyment. Uh, do you have a favorite? I used to read Car and Driver a lot mainly because I was in it a lot. <laughs> but I used to, yeah. I, I ran the uh, the Cannonball Run, One Lap of America with Brock Yates uh, three times. Uh, first time wow. in 2002 in my village of Lamborghini Diablo VT. Actually, I uh, a saying that my wife still makes fun of me today. I didn't realize when I saw the entrance, entrance list uh, for the One Lap of America that that just meant what the car started at. So if it said Fort... Festiva. It was not a Ford Festiva. It was a 400 horsepower twin turbo Ford Festiva with a Taurus SHO engine in the back seat. So the entrance list, entrance <laughs> list meant nothing at all. It just meant this is what it was at one point. <laughs> so with my yeah, Lamborghini yeah. Diablo, I thought I'd have to be doing pretty well. I realized I showed up, with, uh, brought a knife to a gunfight, and that's the saying my wife still makes fun of. So for me saying that, but I still finished 10th in the first event out of 91 cars. I actually finished third in a dirt track event in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where we had to run an eight mile dirt track, three laps. And I finished third in a street-driven Diablo. Here you go. Sounds like fun. Well, here we are at the Checkered Flag, a place you've been many times. I'm going to buy you a very cool collector car today, Carl. Anything you'd like to have in your garage. But you have to play by my rules. You can't sell it to buy a bunch of other cars with. You have to keep it and drive it. But here's the kicker. It's the only one cool collector car you can own. So you need to choose wisely. What can I buy you? Well, Mark, I can make this super easy for you, maybe easier than anyone on your show so far. I, All right. I already own that car. Oh, even better. Yeah, yeah. you'll save me some bucks today. What yeah. is it? 
I have a one of a kind Audi R8 E10 Plus that was built by a friend of mine in Atlanta, Georgia. The white body was built by him. It was modeled after the Le Mans race car, uh, the factory Le Mans Audi race car. And it's the car is six foot ten wide in the back. It uh I built I built the car with special suspension, motion control suspension system that we developed together. Uh the car goes around corners like on rails. Uh the V ten power is amazing. Um I have put forty two thousand miles on it since the car hit the road in May of two thousand seventeen. So the car wow. is now just short of three years on the road and I put forty two thousand miles on it. I can go into a grocery store. It's my daily driver. When we had snow here a uh, year and a half or so ago, two years ago, I, I was the only guy on the interstate in that, in that car. There's no one else to leave the house. I can go yeah. into a store and come out 10 minutes later, and I'm just blown away by my, by my own ride. It's like, wow, look at this car. And if you can yeah. have that feeling after 42,000 miles and driving it daily, then you really know that you have a car worth owning. Yeah, for sure. Well, what is it with you with six foot plus wide cars, Carl? Oh my gosh. Uh, it seems to be a trend in you, but I'm really happy that you already had the car of your dreams. I've had many guests on the show that already do, and I, I think that's really spectacular. Very cool. You have to send me a picture of that thing because it sounds like a total beast. You've taken us on a cool ride today, my friend. This has been fun. Thank you for sharing your journey. Is there one little maybe parting piece of wisdom or guidance you might offer our listeners before you rip off into the sunset in that Audi R8 V10 Plus with a big rear end. <laughs> yeah, it does have a nice ass for sure. So the <laughs> as a parting wisdom, again, going back to my initial comment, I think, you know, love what you do, concentrate on what you are best at. Don't try to do everything uh, and be mediocre at 10 different things. Find something that you can really be good at. Do it in the best way possible so others can benefit from it and you will have an enjoyable life. Absolutely. Great advice for you listeners out there. What's the best way for people to follow along with you and your business at European Road and Racing? So we, of course, have a website. Uh, very easy to remember. It's one word, all spelled out, europeanroadandracing.com. We are on Facebook also, and of course, I have a personal page on Facebook, Carl Troy, and we share a lot of uh, goodies every day about what we do in the shop. I do have family members working for me. My son, Sean, is what, just turned 22 on Friday, uh, is my front, uh, my uh, service manager, but he also is a technician, so he has a great way of communicating with the customer because he understands it. He's not just a salesman or whatever, like most service writers are. He can truly connect with the customer and explain things in the right way to make them understand what the needs are. I have my brother Martin, who's now 43, uh, that works from in the back. He works on the older Mercedes and Porsches because he knows them well. And my son Michael, who's 29, who is my exotic car guy and also uh, works on some of the older Porsches. So I have uh, three family members working for me, my well, not four, including my daughter who comes in and pays bills. And then I have uh, a couple of technicians that are not easy to find because it's difficult to find uh, strangers that uh, fit in like your own family members, you know, people that really, really care. But luckily, I have those people in my shop so we can take care of our customers in the best way possible. But yeah, we share a lot of stuff uh, on, our, on our Facebook page. People love seeing what we do. We're very well known in the area. People sometimes just stop by. Hey, I saw you on Facebook. I just want to see if I can have a look around and see your shop. And I give them a tour. We love to share the passion. We have people coming by. Hey, my six-year-old son loves cars. Could you please, can I 
bring him by and show him some stuff. And then, of course, when I let them sit in the cool car. They just they just glow with excitement. And uh, and I'm trying to further that passion, the same passion that I had when I was young. Uh, it is so enjoyable to try to pass it on and maybe strike that that flame, uh, uh, get that flame going in some in some child that it was just like you one at one time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listeners, you can learn everything that Carl has shared with us today on his very own Cars Yeah show notes page. I'll put links to ways to connect with him. Check it out. I want to do a shout out here for Jake Raby, who introduced me to Carl. Jake's a past guest here, a wonderful guy. And some of the other folks you mentioned, Charles Navarro and others that and others that have been guests on the show. Uh, it's all a great, big, happy family here. Carl, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your life with us today. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road. Thank you, Mark. It was enjoyable to be with you. There you go. You too. Hey, Cars Yeah listeners. This is Mark Green. If you love the Cars Yeah podcast, I have something new for you. I've teamed up with Keith Martin, a collector car market expert and the editor of Sports Car Market Magazine to create the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast. Buy, Sell, Hold is the essence of collecting. Together, we take you on an educational ride into the collector car market, talking with industry experts, helping you navigate your collector car journey so you know when to buy, sell, hold. We talk with seasoned experts who buy, sell, and hold investment vehicles, and they'll share their insider secrets on how they make their buying decisions when it comes to making these important investments. You'll find the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast on the Cars yeah! website, on the Sports Car Market website, and if you're a podcast app subscriber to Cars yeah! Buy, Sell, Hold will come right to your mobile device, just like the Cars yeah! podcast, automatically. Join Keith Martin and me on a great new venture on the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah. Cars Yeah.